0: This episode is brought to you by the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies. To find out more and register online, go to www.smfm.org. You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson, each month we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology.
1: In this, the final installment of our Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine Roundup podcast Dr. George Soddy, Dr. Chris Robinson, and myself, Bill Goodnight, conclude our discussion of selected abstracts as presented at this year's Society for Maternal-Fetal Medicine Annual Meeting, the Pregnancy Meeting. We're going to shift gears a little bit away from ultrasound back to intrapartum events. Dr. Robinson also highlighted another paper from one of the oral plenary sessions. Are low-volume hospitals low risk for maternal morbidity? This was presented by Dr. Alexander Friedman from the Columbia University Medical Center.
2: I think this is a very important topic because when we start tackling maternal mortality as well as maternal risk and labor, and we think about where patients deliver, sometimes they have a choice, and they can choose to go to a very high-volume hospital. And then some patients, because of rural America or because of transportation issues or other reasons, may not have an option. They may deliver in a lower delivery volume hospital. So this is a very interesting evaluation looking at the, of course, we know that we're moving into a a time period where we're looking at regionalization of maternal care, just like we've taken on regionalization of perinatal care. And I think we need to understand exactly what are the risks and what are the type of demographics of the patients that we see having significant morbidity in different hospitals. And I don't believe I've ever seen a breakdown specifically of the maternal morbidity according to the delivery volume in those hospitals. And this study utilized the nationwide inpatient sample to really look at a group of women between 1998 and 2010. Of course, you have to take a larger time period when you're going to look at hospitals that sometimes had less than 100 deliveries per year occurring to be able to understand exactly what those risk factors were and and what type of women were appearing in these hospitals. But they looked at a total of close to 51 million women who were delivering across different volume hospitals and they basically looked at high volume centers as being those with more than 2,000 deliveries per year, moderate volume centers between 1,000 to 2,000, and then low volume between 501 to 1,000, and then very low volume, which are those between 100 to 500. And then they classified different major morbidities and even mortality according to this annualized delivery volume across these patients. They reported these rates as rates per 100,000 deliveries. And what was really interesting is some of the things we could certainly potentially begin to say that it's possible I might predict that a woman could be at high risk for instance for sepsis or maybe she's at high risk status asthmaticus because of history, and then there's certainly other conditions that maybe she presents with pulmonary edema or stroke, and one of the ones that certainly struck me during this presentation was pulmonary hypertension was one of the things that they looked at as well, and I think we would all agree that when we see women, and certainly our counterparts that are in rural America see women with pulmonary hypertension, they are not interested in caring for that person in a low volume hospital. But oftentimes, unfortunately, these are not predictable events. And I think the bottom line that the authors came to in this presentation was that it's going to be the responsibility of the large volume centers to shepherd the teaching and learning and especially implementation of protocols and best practices for smaller delivery volume hospitals if we're going to really be able to target these untoward maternal outcomes because it does appear that the rates of these outcomes are very similar in the low delivery volume hospitals as they are in the high delivery volume hospitals when we assume that if we have the option, we will always try to move those patients that have significant morbidities and risk to high volume hospitals because of increased services. So it is interesting that we still have very, very significant risk patients delivering in very low volume hospitals and it's going to need to be a joint effort to shepherd those hospitals by the larger hospitals to ensure that we have adequate protocols and care practices in place for these centers.
3: This is really very timely, given what SNFM and ACOG have come up with about levels of maternal care, and that really proves the point, that morbidity still occurs in low-volume hospitals. Now, I, I don't know what levels of maternal care they would be, but you would assume they're not going to be a level four or a level three, So to me that justifies that we need regionalization of maternal care, not just neonatal care which we have right now, but also maternal care. The one thing I would be cautious about is make sure people don't take from this that there was a comparison of the outcome or that lower-volume hospital may have worse outcome than higher-volume hospital. I don't think that was done in this case. What I take from this is that morbidity still occurs even in low-volume hospitals.
2: I think you're exactly right. I think that the key here is, is that these outcomes are going to occur across all levels of care, and I would assume that even prior to the maternal levels of care, we already operated to some degree and getting these patients to a higher level of care, especially acute heart failure, things of this nature. But what was interesting is that, you know, it's clear a lot of these patients might be coming to these hospitals specifically because they just do not have the capability or option. And I think one of the mm-hmm. things that's also going to come out of this is we're going to need to really evaluate our transport capability and having very good transport capability into larger centers with these type of outcomes occurring in hospitals that sometimes had less than 100 deliveries. And I agree with you, we don't have any sense of outcomes, but these are the type of outcomes they're looking at are really some of the most morbid.
1: I would think that this also would highlight that need, as you alluded to, that these are events that are going to happen in a very small hospital and that that hospital needs to not just rely on the ability to just transfer them out, but should come up with some novel ways of educating themselves as to how to deal with something that they don't see very often, either through telemedicine or, low fidelity or high-fidelity simulations or things like that so that they still can be prepared for these very, very rare events and not have a dramatic difference in outcomes.
2: That's a great point. That is. I agree.
1: I'm going to shift gears back to cesarean and infection for our last abstract of the evening. One of the abstracts during the Saturday morning oral concurrent session on labor was the Treatment Utility of Postpartum Antibiotics in amionitis Study, the TUPAC study. This abstract was presented by Dr. Anthony Shanks from Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. The aim of this randomized controlled trial was to determine if a post-delivery dose of genomycin and clindamycin, compared to no further antibiotics resulted in a reduction in the risk of endometritis in patients undergoing cesarean delivery after they had the diagnosis of chorioamnionitis in labor. Diagnosis of chorioamnionitis was made by the typical clinical findings of maternal fever, fetal tachycardia, maternal tachycardia. Patients received ampicillin and genomycin in labor, and then had an indication for a C-section. They received a single dose of clindamycin prior to the cesarean incision and then were randomized either to no further antibiotics after delivery or an additional dose of genomycin and clindamycin approximately eight hours after delivery. The authors found was that there was no difference in the rate of endometritis with the post-delivery antibiotics. The rate of endometritis in the untreated group was 9.8% compared to 7.7% in those who received the antibiotics. The study was stopped about halfway through their planned enrollment for futility. The sample size was set based on a 30% assumed risk of endometritis in patients with chorioamnionitis that underwent a cesarean delivery. So they were going for 119 patients per arm. They stopped at a total of 80 patients with these findings. They then did take their data and added it to two other prior trials as sort of a meta-analysis and, again, did not find a statistically significant difference between the antibiotic and the no-antibiotic group of 16.7 versus 12%. The authors concluded that additional postpartum antibiotics do not decrease the rate of endometritis in patients with chorionitis that undergo cesarean delivery. I think there are some strengths from this study. It is prospective. It is a randomized controlled trial. One of the challenges that I think they had was, as we alluded to earlier, somewhat of an overestimation of their risk of their primary outcome when they went to power their study. The outcome ended up being a little less than 10% when they had estimated the rate of infection of approximately 30%. So that does put them at risk for some beta or type 2 error. They did try to resolve this by adding the two other trials into a meta-analysis and still did not show any difference. I think this could make significant impacts on less antibiotic exposure and and those kinds of things in the postpartum period. However, there still remains a 10% that got that diagnosis of endometritis that I'd rather that number be smaller before I don't do anything. So I'd be curious to hear other people's opinions.
3: I always thought that after a vaginal delivery complicated with choreoimmunitis, you don't need any more antibiotics, and that was, has been my practice all along. But I always felt uneasy about it after a C-section. When a patient gets a C-section, we often add clindamycin to the ampicillin gentamicin, which they did here. And then what do we do? Do we just stop? That's it, one dose of clindamycin. And I felt uneasy about it. I mean, this one, was the meta-analysis, probably makes me feel more comfortable about not giving any more antibiotics. But on the other hand, I'm a little worried about the small sample size, and these patients are going to be in the hospital anyway for two, three days. Why not just give them one more dose of antibiotic? which was the other study where they compared one more dose versus continuing for a febrile 24 hours, and one more dose was as good as continuing it any more further. So I'm still conflicted. I don't know what to do. I would say uh, not more than one more dose for sure, but if you're really brave, then don't give them any more antibiotics.
1: (laughs) I, I would even go another way and say that i I don't know that I disagree with them that that one dose or no antibiotics makes a difference, but I remain a little bit uneasy by the high rate of persistent postpartum febrile morbidity, and maybe we need to come up with some other way of managing this. Is there a different surgical technique? Is there a different type of antibiotic that we need you know when they're left with a seven to ten percent endometritis rate and a two to seven percent wound infection rate? it's hard for me to feel like I don't need to do anything afterwards. I'm not sure that I know exactly what it is that I need to do, but I think just stopping antibiotics maybe and may not be the thing.
2: Yeah, I think it still leaves it up in the air. It adds data to maybe the idea that we do not need to give additional antibiotics post-cesarian delivery following corteoamnionitis, but on the other hand, with only 80 patients, if there's going to be a serious outcome we may not have enough patients to know whether that's the case. Because remember, we're looking specifically at the outcomes of endometritis, wound infection, the combined combination of those. I guess you could argue that the duration of stay, to some extent, could be used as a surrogate for the severity of outcome in the patient. And it did trend a little bit longer, even though not statistically significant, in the postpartum antibiotic arm. The problem is, is I don't know that it's not protective because the study stopped early. I don't know whether that's the case or not.
3: In a sense, this makes me feel better and more confident not to give any more antibiotics after a vaginal delivery and not to give more than one dose after a cesarean. So. I'll just stick with
1: that. Well, I'd like to thank the editors today from the American Journal of Perinatology for joining us on this podcast. Again, with us was Dr. George Sadi, Dr. Alan Tita, and Dr. Chris Robinson. We look forward to seeing you again on the next in our series of American Journal of Perinatology podcasts. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you all. Thank you, Bill, for moderating this.
0: That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Paranatology. This episode was brought to you by the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies. To find out more and register online, go to www.smfm.org.